I see a park also as becoming a hub for a community where you could talk about all of these other issues, whether it's healthy eating and you could have, you know, a farmer's market come to the park every, you know, month or every couple of weeks or whatever you want to do. You know, it becomes a hub for a community in a way that has been kind of lost, frankly, right? So if you think of like the old timey town square, right, that was an open space that people could come together, exchange information, help each other, you know, provide services. and my hope or my dream is that these parks could also do that as well, right? They don't just have to be sort of these passive opportunities. They can be a place to really come together. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. California is one of our most complex and important states. Over 40 million people live in California, more than any other state. California's economy is so large that if it were an independent nation, it would have the fifth largest economy in the world. Yeah, that means only four countries in the world have larger economies than just California alone. California and its politics can be very polarizing, but like it or not, it's a critical pillar of our economy and we all depend on its output. California is also home to some of the most profound and diverse natural resources we have. It features famous dense forests like Yosemite and Sequoia to well-known deserts such as Death Valley. It's known for its beautiful coastline and its agriculturally rich Central Valley. California gives us wine and avocados and almonds and oranges. It's also home to a wide range of diversified species. These natural resources are under constant threat from things like droughts, wildfires, human development, earthquakes, rising sea levels, and warming temperatures. And these are not just threats to California's wilderness or wildlife. These are threats to Californians. So managing these resources is no small order. Today, we sit down with Angela Barranco, Undersecretary for Natural Resources in California. We'll talk about her amazing progress on increasing outdoor access for state residents, the water crisis, and wildfires. I learned a lot in talking with Angela, and we really only had time to scratch the surface of these issues. So hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, reach out if you want any more detail about some of the things we're talking about. So, yeah, so you want to just uh, start by setting the table on, on your exact role and the types of things that you touch? Yeah, absolutely. So... My fancy and very impressive title <laughs> is Undersecretary of the California Natural Resources Agency. So to sort of break that down, though, a little bit, I'm the number two of an agency of 21,000 employees, basically across all the state of California, who manage and steward all of our natural resources. So that includes everything from coasts to our forests to all of our state parks. We actually have one of the largest state park systems in the country. So it's a pretty phenomenal system and I'm sure many of you, uh, and you've also been in, in many of those. And it's pretty just amazing work that they do in communities across the state. But that's one, just one element. We also have the State Water Project and uh, Department of Water Resources that really manages the water supply across the state of California, which is an incredible technological and political feat. I would add on top of that, we have CAL FIRE, who also manages all of the wildfire uh, response across the state, as well as some local municipality response. So, and, you know, 
incredible resources in terms of, you know, fish and wildlife and managing the sort of animal and biodiversity of our state, but also we manage things like oil and gas leases, as well as energy. In terms of clean energy, we have the California Energy Commission as well as a part of our team. So we also have 10 conservancies. I mean, I could go on and on. There's just so much under the umbrella of the Natural Resources Agency. And as undersecretary and as the number two of the agency, I oversee all of it. And so that is a lot of management duties that I would say is in terms of you know, the day-to-day management of an agency involves all sorts of, you know, literal and figurative firefighting, right? So, you know, just helping troubleshoot all the issues, but, you know, also setting course in terms of our agenda and our priorities and really thinking through, you know, the incredible work that we do day-to-day to, you know, manage our natural resources, but where do we want to go? Where do we want to take that? And really thinking about those big picture blue sky ideas that we can do on behalf of our natural resources. So managing the natural resources in California is no small feat. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, we'll do our listeners justice to just remind folks of how complex and unique the state of California is, right? I mean, California's economy would be the fifth largest in the world if we were a sovereign state. Yeah. So it just put that in perspective, it, you know, compare all the countries in the world, only four countries have larger economies in the state of California. You have two massive and very different metropolises in the San Francisco Bay Area and LA, Southern California. You have, I don't know what percentage is, Southern California, a large percentage of the state is essentially a desert, like an actual desert (laughs) that we have developed a lot of property and infrastructure on. You have a huge booming agricultural industry kind of sitting in between the Bay Area and California, and all of that requires water as well. And then you have Northern California, which is just beautiful lush forest that supplies a lot of the water that Southern California uses. And all of these pieces have to work together. There's 40 million people in the state across a very, very wide spectrum of sort of from an income standpoint. You have some of the richest people in the world, and you have probably some of the biggest homeless crisis in the entire United States. So yeah, it's, it's the, I don't know how to overstate how, how to, I can't overstate how complex and unique California is. Is there anything else that sort of stands that sticks out to you of, you know, the kind of uniqueness and the complexity of California when it comes to managing natural resources? Well, you know, people don't realize because we are so you know, blessed with such incredible natural resources when you think of like our incredible mountains and the coastlines and the deserts and, you know, the valley and all these sort of things, but how really engineered much of the landscape is, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how water travels through the state or how people travel through the state or frankly, how our wildlife travels through the state, you know, if you think of that wildlife crossing in Southern California for the mountain lions, right? So much of what uh, we perceive as the natural landscape is a part of a very long history of management, right? And whether you look at it, something like wildfire and the management of, and, you know, preservation of like life and property that led to wildfire suppression for a long time, which created all sorts of problems that we didn't really fully appreciate at the time, right? To managing water flows between North and South and from other states into places like California or Southern California, excuse me, that, you know, don't have a natural water base where they are. And so are heavily dependent on external water source to even our coastlines. You know, you think about 
you know, shipping and oil production and all the things that happen off the coastline in, you know, although we have these incredibly beautiful beaches, there's a long history of cleanups, of racial segregation, of all the things that, you know, we do to, to navigate that landscape that's really a part of that history and part of our present today, right? So there's some just really interesting questions with exactly what we're talking about that, you know, we as people have had some pretty tremendous impacts on all of these places and spaces. And some of them are good. Some of them are not so good and are really complicated to unknot. So I just named the wildfire one, which is a really tricky one, but that's just a really good example of exactly that. We thought for hundred, you know, a hundred years, we were doing the right thing. We were stopping wildfires, right? Like it was so, you know, yes, we're saving our, our property. And through, but a few, you know, a couple of decades ago, we realized, oh, actually, if you don't let it burn, you actually create hotter, bigger, worse mm-hmm. wildfires, right? So anyway, yeah. I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But yeah, that's a, it's such an interesting and unique place to work for that as well. Yeah, I definitely want to get in get into the water crisis and uh, wildfire season, because those are two things that for any Californian, but even I think for any American, they're kind of very aware of. Yeah. But let's start with a big recent announcement you had with the Outdoor Access for All initiative. Yeah. Could you explain, summarize the initiative and summarize the kind of recent announcement and the funding and how it's going to be used? Absolutely. Well, this is something that's super near and dear and, uh, to my heart, just because I think it's funny, I mean, I was trained as a conservation biologist, right? And so just to take a small step back, you know, I was really focused on like the animals and the ecosystems and, you know, learning how the species work and all this sort of stuff. And I think through my career of, you know, working in many different spaces, whether they be political or scientific, to really think about the conservation of these places and spaces and, and animals and, and creatures, right? I realized how much, you know, the people element, the people ecosystem was kind of missing, right? We don't think of ourselves as part of the ecosystem, but frankly, we are. And one thing that I really, really started to really think deeply about, especially when I was working on the LA River stuff, you know, was how important these spaces are, not just for, you know, transportation or other things, but people as part of this ecosystem really need a connection to nature, a connection to, you know, the biodiversity, a connection to green space and open door and outdoors and that, that we are, we're hardwired that way, right? So when you look at, you know, health and out, outcomes for communities with higher levels of, you know, access to open space and green space, you find, you know, these incredible statistics about increased, you know, mental and public, mental public health and physical health for individuals, like, you know, communities themselves are just healthier, but also individuals, you know, reduced rates of anxiety, increased rates of exercise, all the great things that you find, you know, when folks can just, you know, step out of their door and go um, to (laughs) places. And so, you know, as part of the agency leadership, we really thought long and hard when we you know, first started a couple of years ago, like how can we move the needle on a few really key and critical issues? And the three issues that we really focused on and sort of honed in on were biodiversity, climate, of course, and the third being access. And really seeing those three as sort of, you know, a group of efforts that actually work very closely together. Because as you increase access and increase parks and open space for people, you actually create biodiversity and spaces to be able to increase climate resilience. And so for us, it's actually, you know, three, the old expression, the three-legged stool, you need all three to be able to really increase and improve, you know, our 
state for the benefit of all Californians. And so we created this initiative called the Outdoor Access for All Initiative. And just last week, very exciting, the first part of the initiative was announced. In essence, it's a challenge to us and to all of our partners across the state to come together and figure out how we can really, you know, kind of systemically look at all the challenges and barriers to outdoor access for Californians, whether it be in low-income disadvantaged communities in urban areas or in rural areas or everywhere in between by thinking about, you know, how do we invest our dollars as a state are really targeting them in ways that like help increase the programmatic and infrastructure parts of outdoor access, but then also look within, you know, can we improve our systems? Can we take down systemic barriers within our organization, but then also use our workforce as sort of a, a change agent to reflect the diversity and wonderfulness of California. And so, you know, in so many ways, the first tranche was announced Last week, where we announced a billion dollars worth of state funding for, you know, outdoor access expansion. So, you know, everything from getting kids to the coast to be able to, you know, hop on a bus with a bunch of their classmates to be able to get out there and check out what's available and play with sea turtles and, you know, help rebuild some habitat to making sure our state parks are available for all kids and, and for, frankly, disadvantaged communities across the state so that the parks pass doesn't become, you know, kind of a barrier to entry to building parks in every community. So anyway, I could talk about all the pieces, but we announced a significant investment and a huge down payment on this. And it, you know, we're just really excited for it. Absolutely. Can you, can you help define what is having access versus not having access Another, another, I guess, way of asking this, <clears throat> one of the studies you sent me, it found that 70% of lower-income communities are nature-deprived. And just curious on how that gets defined. What is being nature-deprived? Is it the distance that people are living from a, a park? What qualifies as a park? What state, you know, does that park have to be in to qualify? Like, how, how are we actually defining these things when we think of nature-deprived? nature deprived living access no access that's oh, such a great question because i think you know folks have found a couple different ways to define it and you you know kind of talk about a couple there but you know i'll, I'll throw two statistics which i think are really um, helpful so four out of ten californians live um, in communities with absolutely no parks access which means that within a 10 minute walk or a 10 minute drive there's no park so if you just think about like huge parts of Southern California, there's actually a lot of parks and areas in the Bay Area. And um, there's even areas in, in sort of more rural, what we would term rural communities that don't have public access to many of the open spaces that you can readily see, right? Like you can, you can like hang out in your house and you can walk down the street, but you can't go to a park. And so- and are, Can I, sorry to interrupt you. Can I, are, okay. we, are we defining park in that standpoint as some, you know, something with, open streams or wetlands or some degree of, of strong tree cover or is, you know, I don't know, a couple baseball fields that, you know, set up years ago, does that classify as a park? Like yeah. how are we defining park in, in, in that context? Well, it's another great question. Actually, the way they defined that first statistic is, is much more that open idea. It's for recreation as well as sort of nature and everything in between. So for some folks, you know, they might not consider a soccer field nature, but it is considered a recreation and open space opportunity. So we would probably, we would count those as well. The second statistic is actually where I think this is 
where it gets even more complicated. Six out of ten Californians live in what's considered park poor neighborhoods. So yeah, this would I was be like ask where, about that too. <laughs> yeah. So that's where, like, say you had a soccer field or you had maybe a baseball field, but it's in disrepair. Or what ends up happening is some communities, you know, they are able to get funding to build a park, but then not to be able to maintain it. And so the park gets closed or the park is, you know, not in good shape. And say some of the amenities that have been built, like a playground <laughs> or other things are out of order. And so those are considered park poor areas where, yeah, okay, I have a basketball field, a basketball, you know, court, but I don't have any other, you know, stuff. And there's no amenities like programming for, you know, outdoor classes or education or, you know, any of those other things that you would want to have. So it's an incredible statistic for a place like California, like we were talking about, that has such incredible natural resources. The fact that a majority of Californians don't have what one would consider like quality, high quality access. Um, to the outdoors. And it's understandable how we got to this situation, this problem, right? And that working class, lower class families, which have always been disproportionately people of color, but there's white people certainly impacted by this as well, have, they live in denser areas where, you know, in order to make the housing more affordable, they frankly put more people in smaller areas. And that is, comes at the cost of, sort of the cost of the natural parks or natural lands that would be there. I think a great example that comes to mind of how this can really go astray is the hurricanes in Houston years ago and the floods that came after it. You know, that Houston area always had a lot of natural wetlands that absorbed that water. And for years, Houston was very, it seemed like, gung-ho on being one of the fastest growing cities and growing their economy by means of bringing more people in. And that required them to build a lot more affordable housing on these wetlands. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, <clears throat> the water didn't get, you know, sucked into the earth. Concrete does not do that to water <laughs> in the same way wetlands do. And it was those people that were living in those affordable housing units that got impacted the most uh, right. because they're the ones that got flooded. And, you know, they don't have the means to build again, repair. They have to wait for government support, which can be very, very problematic. And so it's understandable that people in the working class, lower income brackets don't have much, much access. And I think uh, some people will think, well, what about farming and kind of rural life, which is, 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 you know, not is, is sort of working class lifestyle as well, but that gets into the land ownership issue, which has also been, you know, disproportionately white and generational here in the United States, yeah. to be a farmer, to be a livestock, to be a rancher, you have to own land. And that land has been owned by, you know, the same types of communities for hundreds of years in this country. And so mm -hmm. that's also been an issue. So is, I guess what I'm getting at is how much of solving this problem of access directly correlated to solving the wealth gap issue mm -hmm. and things like home and land ownership issue in the United States versus how much of it is, hey, we need to actually just get funding to build parks directly in these communities, you know, regardless of, of trying to move them up the economic ladder, they need access to this. Like where, how do we, you know, where do you kind of draw the lines on, you know, what's going to have more impact and, you know, either fighting the, the wealth gap issue head on and using that as a means of fighting the outdoor access or, kind of accepting the wealth gap issue as it is, and then trying to provide access within that framework that, you know, our, our country has created. That's an amazing question. I mean, I think you really need both and not, not to hedge my bets here too much, but just to say, you know, I don't think 
you can have systemic poverty in the long term and expect that a park is going to change the, you know, to change that equation for people, right? And I think, you know, people like me or you or other people who are out there in the world advocating either for climate change or for, you know, social and, you know, the end of social inequity and all this stuff, we really have to see the larger systemic issues as our issues, right? And I think that it's it's absolutely integral that as you do this work to see the bigger picture. I will say though, that I think, especially in California, we do have resources to put into things like parks, whereas other communities or other places might not, right? We we have this like tendency as Californians and that might drive some people crazy, but you know, we tax ourselves for these, incredible community benefits, right? In LA, there was a, a water and parks bond, you know, two separate bonds that taxed themselves. And, and I mean, these bonds passed with flying colors, you know, 70% of the population saying yes to these bonds to be able to bring, you know, open space to communities, to be able to bring solutions to storm water. You know, it's sort of like we live in a community that I think is already tuned into these issues. And so I think there is a very proximate, a very, you know, opportunity of now, especially with this budget surplus, to invest some of that money back into communities that have been traditionally disinvested. And I think that's the opportunity that like is right in front of us. But you do have to see it within that larger context because I don't think you will solve it in the long term without yep. that. Now there's no question that having access to parks and outdoor recreation absolutely, you know, boosts health short and long-term. Um, studies have shown that. I think, again, in a study you showed me, which I'll put the notes into the podcast, um, episode notes for everybody, something like a, every dollar kind of invested into parks and outdoor access saves $3 in healthcare. And it's not only for issues like asthma, which form from kind of living in concrete jungles, right? But also from mental health. Mm-hmm. My, absolutely. the, the the challenge I'm imagining in my head is I'm thinking of a, a single mom, you know, it's a racing four kids in a lower income neighborhood right now. Mm-hmm. And what she probably is really needing is she needs uh, childcare and daycare support. She needs access to healthier food for her family. She needs her kids to have a better public ed- school education, which is incredibly underfunded. So in a, in a scenario where, you know, we, we, we go to this woman and say, Hey, we haven't addressed those three issues yet, but we got this new park a few blocks away. I can imagine her reaction, <laughs> right? Being thanks, but no thanks, so to speak. Like, great, but these aren't the immediate issues I feel. These are the immediate issues, our daycare, our food access and living in a food desert, our, you know, my, my worried about my, my kids' education. Those are my immediate issues. I wish if those three things were solved, I'm happy to like spend time in a park. I don't even have time to go to a park because I'm working four jobs, keeping food on the table. So what do we say to that example and how, how would we have a conversation about why we're, we're investing here now when there's still, you know, for that woman and, you know, in that hypothetical case, more pressing issues for her? No, it's, a, it's a great question. And I would say it's, it's all of the above. And, it, you know, this billion dollar investment in access also comes as part of a hundred billion dollar across the board investment in things like education, in healthcare, in in all the things that you're talking about as well, right? So I would say it's an it's an investment that's a part of a larger, they call it the 
you know, California for all, you know, umbrella that we're trying to put forward as an administration. So I would say putting this investment in context of that, I think is really important. I mean, the second thing I would really say is that, you know, kids, especially uh, young kids want to run around and want to do stuff, right? And so I think a lot of families would benefit tremendously about having that act, that access be much more localized, right? And so, you know, a lot oftentimes people think about access to the outdoors as like taking kids out to like Yosemite and like to some, you know, to the beach or some grand sort of thing. But what we're really saying is that every neighborhood should have a park, right, as well. So you have to be able to have access to those wonderful places, but also within your community. So, you know, it's as simple as that mom being able to say like, okay, I can walk five minutes with my kids every afternoon. They can run around in this beautiful park. I don't have to worry about that. That's like one last thing I have to worry about, which is like, what am I going to do with these kids every evening, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think there's this really interesting thing. And this is, I actually worked at HUD um, a few years back and, they had such a wonderful sort of holistic view of how to really approach, you know, poverty reduction and, and kind of that intensive look at like how the federal government and, you know, in their mind could provide wraparound services. So, right. So it's not just about, you know, being able to have a conversation with someone about their food, but it's also being able to say, Hey, here's a, you know, I'm talking, having a conversation. So let's, give you an opportunity for the food thing. And then let's give you an educational opportunity and let's give you an outdoor opportunity and let's give you a, you know, a public health opportunity and using all of these points of contact in essence as an opportunity to help and provide service. Right. So I see a park also as becoming a hub for community where you could talk about all of these other issues, whether it's healthy eating and you could have, you know, a farmer's market come to the park every, you know, month or every couple of weeks or whatever you want to do. You know, it becomes a hub for a community in a way that has been kind of lost, frankly, right? So if you think of like the old timey town square, right, that was an open space that people could come together, exchange information, help each other, you know, provide services. And my hope or my dream is that these parks could also do that as well, right? They don't just have to be sort of these passive opportunities. They can be a place to really come together. Now, in California in particular, there's a massive homeless and houseless crisis that is getting worse. It was worsened by the pandemic where, you know, so many people had trouble getting work, where the income gap in the state grew you know, enormously as, you know, sort of Silicon Valley just got so much wealthier uh, than they already were and uh, kind of bottom fell out from those in the working class side. And so as we increase, you know, investment in parks and access to open spaces, if the houses and homeless situation continues to worsen, then we're, you know, those encampment centers all you know, naturally sort of end up there. I see that in LA all the time, where a lot of the open spaces and parks have turned into encampment centers for the houseless community. And it's hard to blame them, like, you know, for, for doing that. I mean, if you're, you know, homeless and, you know, you're living in at best, a, you know, a tent type structure, you know, park is a natural place where you have access to water fountains, you have access to these certainly better than an alleyway. And so how do you think about, you know, tackling these two issues and how kind of interrelated they are and, you know, sort of, yeah, just talk about the correlation with this and and how do we invest in more access to op- open spaces in California while, you know, the homeless situation doesn't seem to be getting better. And I haven't really seen any strong initiatives. And I know there's been like, 
in in the recent plan from Newsom, you know, a lot of announcements. Although, you know, just being you know kind of a little bit of that consumer critical eye, a lot of it seemed just kind of hand wavy. Like I'm throwing money here, throwing money here, and throwing money here. Kind of have to wait to see how it's going to actually be executed to evaluate. It's not really fair to evaluate that good or bad right now because it just was announced, and announcements don't really mean anything. Execution means something. But how do we address the open space issue? while the homeless and houseless situation continues to worsen? That's a, a really important question because I think a couple things. So one, I think, and this is really based on my experience in LA and the LA River work, you know, there's a lot of, how to put this in a, in, in maybe in a less negative light, you know, a lot of concern from communities that, you know, if I, I improve this park space or I bring, you know, this amenity to my community that homelessness will go through the roof, right? Like then they're going to be, you know, coming to my community through these parks and, and, and being there. What I would say is that, you know, the, the data does not reflect that reality, right? It's like, what I would say is that for sure parks become sort of one of these places of refuge for, you know, the unsheltered. But I think that's almost like a, a very specific question, which I kind of want to, you know, I'll also target. But what I, wa- I first want to say is, you know, I think there's a lot of scaremongering around open space and parks and mm-hmm. homelessness that I would first say like, oh, you know, let's really look at the numbers. Like it's it's a lot of concerns that people have, but the reality of it is is very, very different. But I think the second part of this, I would say, is is, is really critical. And this is also, I think, incredible researchers at HUD when I worked there, really taught me so much about what it means to actually help those who without homes is that the vast majority of you know, the unsheltered or homeless are folks who are in between housing or are sort of in between economic, you know, kind of moments in their lives. I, I don't want to quote a statistic, but, you know, very, very high percentage of people, you know, it's like transitionally homeless. Like you said, it's like economy-based or it's occasion-based or there's some issue going on in their lives. And most of those people, if you can help them off their feet, like you help them find a place to stay, you help them find a job, you help them with, you know, any health issues or things that are going on with their lives, they will never be homeless again. And they, you know, they get off their feet and, you know, they're back in it, right? And I think most of those folks are a little bit invisible, uh, is what I would say, because those are folks who live in their cars or are, you know, couch surfing or, or, you know, not often what one would consider, you know, these kind of chronic homeless. And that chronic homeless population is the one that I think most people are thinking of, right? Like folks who are living on the streets for years, oftentimes with, you know, really difficult mental or physical health situations. And that actually requires a totally different tactic. And so that tactic is really about creating supportive housing. So you really want to, you know, take those folks and, and, you know, put them into a safe situation where they have, you know, personal space that's clean, that has accessibility, like you said, to all of the, you know, bathrooms and, and, you know, all of those things, but also access to social services and mental health and physical health services, right? So it's all in one place. And so it's not requiring you to, you know, go X, Y, Z or to do anything. It's all in one place. And so a lot of these announcements are kind of in that um, vein is what I would say. I would look at it in those two forms, right? There's the the kind of like uh, the in temporary infusion for the folks who you just need to get them off their feet and they're going to do great. You just need to help them out a little bit. Boom, they're gone. And then there's the really intensive services around um, those chronically homeless 
that is very expensive when you look at just the bottom line. So per person, I'm going to buy a hotel and, you know, create a a service here and each individual costs a lot of money. But in the long term, the savings that you have is frankly, you know, from emergency room visits or, you know, law enforcement or all these things, it's enormous, but also frankly, is a social cost, right? Like we, as, you know, a community, as a government, as a, you know, folks who just care about other people should be trying to help people in the best way possible. And creating those supportive services is the way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So what I would say is, and so as you're looking at these announcements or folks are thinking about these announcements, really think of those two broad swaths of folks that you're really trying to help. And so there's this program called Project Turnkey that we actually launched at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic. And that was really about, you know, helping those folks, in, you know, get into a place by helping just buy out motels and hotels, right? And saying, hey, you have a safe place to live and then bringing those social services so we can help you out and have it all be in one place. And so I think some of those announcements that are being made now are built off of those, you know, learnings and lessons from that early project to really expand it out and work with municipalities across the state to be able to tackle that issue in that really constructive way. I have two last questions on the outdoor access initiative, yeah. and then we can kind of move into the uh, water crisis, the drought, and a wildfire, which we'll we'll go through a little more a little more quickly. So, my first question is on the outdoor access initiative: How much of this is also about education, particularly with kids and the youth around the benefits of being outdoors, and you know, funding programs for public schools to you know do you know, whether it's field trips or activities or things like this in in the outdoors through our education system. But then I I also think it seems to be there a need for adults to be educated on the health benefits, physical and mental, of going outdoors. It's one thing to just, you know, put a park nearby or create a gateway to an outdoor area that wasn't there before. But if, you know, we all get stuck in our habits in life and that hasn't been part of someone, uh, an adult's habit, um, habits are hard to change. They need to be educated on like the benefits of, of, of getting out there. So how do you think about the role of education in outdoor access for all and, and where does that fit and how much funding does it get allocated and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. So I think we're trying to tackle in two different ways. So one um, is education for K through 12, right? So Right now in California, like I said, we, we're pretty progressive in so many different ways. And we've, you know, really invested in environmental education for, you know, students across the state and there's all this great stuff, but it's not enough, right? Like it's not really, you know, a curriculum that's, you know, thoroughly invested in and has everything it needs. So this particular announcement we just did included $65 million to improve um, the connection and connectivity between K through 12 schools and the state parks. So a simple kind of infusion in understanding how, you know, school curriculum can then utilize the resources of a state park and, and also local parks to then have a conversation that's exactly about what you're saying. So not just like, it's great for public health, but, you know, talk about the impacts of climate change to talk about the benefits of biodiversity, like all of the things that, you know, you can teach as part of an outdoor um, and environmental education. And so we're just really excited to create that, you know, stronger dovetail between those systems because they can often be seen as sort of separate, right? Investments in education and all that conversation seems so separate from the outdoors and from, you know, natural resources and stuff, but it's really not, right? Like this all has to sort of start at the beginning. And then what I would say in terms of, you know, that larger population, 
you know, we are also piloting, it's a little tiny thing in this announcement, but it's really exciting, specific program with Department of Social Services. So that, like, like I was saying before, when you're having a conversation about the different types of social services that are available to you, we should also be talking about state parks passes. There are special passes for folks, you know, of low income. And we should be making sure that everybody has them um, and we're able to distribute and have that conversation much greater. But then also there's a ton of money in there to be able to do outdoor and environmental education in communities across the state. There's actually $40 million in just one program to be able to distribute grants for communities across. So all those wonderful nonprofits and community-based organizations that are doing this work are now eligible to be able to get funding to be able to do exactly this. So you can see how it's like, you know, we're trying to hit it all the different places. So if you're at school, you're, you know, getting a better idea of those things, you come home and you're working with your parents and they have education and information too, or, you know, on the weekends, you can, you know, go to your nature center or go on a trip with your local NGO to kind of do this as well. So really trying to think of all the different angles of education that we could sort of increase and uplift. And the last question for me is, if you could give us maybe one very, very specific use of this funding and how it's being applied. Because I think some of the frustration people have with sort of government sometimes, right, is these big initiatives get announced, these big dollars, numbers get kind of th- thrown out there, but it's hard to track where it actually is going. And we have to sort of take people's word for it. And 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 there's a communication issue there. And that's just not a California issue. It's just a government to citizen issue that you know needs to be kind of improved upon. But for this first swath of funding for the Outdoor Access for All initiative, can you give us an example of something very specific, actually as specific as you can go on you know what is like the type of thing in a, in a very specific neighborhood community that's going to get funding and what that's going to translate to. Absolutely. So I can, I can give you a, a name of a community that I think you could see all the different parts of it too, which I think will be really interesting. And I totally agree with you. We throw around these numbers, like a billion for this, a hundred billion for that. And like, you know, ultimately as an individual, like it sounds nice and that sounds cool, but like there's no reference point, right? There's no, it kind of lives sort of out in another sphere. So one community I worked very closely with when I was with the LA River work is this community of Southgate. It's along the LA River in Southern LA and is a community that's considered one of the most park poor in the entire state of California. So literally you drive down the street in in Southgate and it's house after house after house after house, oftentimes with cars lining the street and very, very little open space, right? And so the LA River being a ginormous piece of infrastructure that runs right literally through the middle of the town, it, you know, is all concrete and, you know, not very good, quote unquote, open space, right? So what a community like that could do in this case is first get you know, a significant portion of funding for, let's say, greening that, you know, concretized space, right? So they have a wonderful bike path that runs sort of the length of the LA River. There's funding in this um, Outdoor Access for All initiative to put trees up to increase open space and green space as part of that area, right? And so all of that infrastructure redevelopment towards green space. So whether it's creating a local park, you know, redeveloping a small, a small lot someplace and, you know, to open up some open space in other parts to create a, a playground, all of that's, you know, all of the funding that we do in this initiative is available to that community to, to apply and be a part of. The second thing I would point to is, you know, I worked really closely with their high school and they just are an incredible STEM school who is just committed to science and, 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 you know, education, but they 
they lack a very strong, you know, tax base to be able to do all the program that they want to do, right? This includes funding to be able that that school could apply for and be, you know, working with to be able to increase their environmental engineering program, to increase, you know, all of the ways that they do field trips to be able to go out to the coast or go out to a state park or to wherever to do, you know, these trips that are really about sort of opening the lens, you know, the aperture for all of these kids to see what's out there, right? But then also to fund the programs within those schools so that, you know, you can have that extra teacher or you can have that extra curriculum brought in for after school to be able to do that kind of educational programming. And then what I would say, like, you know, the last piece of this also is, you know, those, you know, environmental NGOs or just regular, you know, communities like the Boys and Girls Club, you know, also can apply in Southgate to say, hey, we'd like to do, you know, this, you know, environmental curriculum and, but, you know, we want to theme it around the LA River. We actually worked with a group who did a whole outward bound curriculum on the LA River because most people don't think of the LA River as this open space, but it really is. And it's actually a great bird migration route, you know, and you wouldn't know these things unless you educate folks and tell them about it. So all those little local NGOs, all those folks who are spending every day um, working in that community to improve it, in many ways, have access to dollars here to be able to, you know, pay their staff, do field trips, to do the work that they do every day even better. And so really excited about that as well. So it's not just, you know, the infrastructure part, it's also the programming part. It's also about getting, you know, bringing the outdoors to every community, but also being able to make sure that all those community members have access to the outdoors anywhere they want to go. Awesome. Well, congrats on the announcement and and the work and the the work around you know creating outdoor access for everybody it's so important and uh, i'm sure it was fulfilling this last week to have that first big step taken going over kind of pivoting to the water discussion and i know this discussion could be a four-hour podcast um, by itself (laughs) i i want to just cover as high level what's happening right now california is in the midst of another drought I believe I believe we were in we were in one from 2014 to 2019, correct? Is that correct? Yep, and that correct. we're in a, we're in another one. Yeah. And what I think people are not sure what that means. Let's let's start by just setting the table for how Californians get their water. I think particularly is Southern Californians because that is where you have the majority of people in the state. And it's also where they, you know, pretty much don't have their own water supply, natural water supply. In fact, you know, most, a lot of the water comes from, whether it be the Colorado River, whether it be Northern California, from like kind of the frost runoff and things like that, and the rainfall that they get over the winter season. Uh, And this was another winter here in LA as someone living there that there wasn't a lot of rainfall. I can count on two hands the number of days we had rain uh, this year. So what are we facing right now, you know, go in 2021 in terms of the drought right now? What are the biggest concerns and, you know, what, how are they, you know, how are they going to be met? It's a great question because I think, you know, it's such a, well, let me, let me put my thoughts together just because I know we're going to have this conversation, but it's so complicated and so challenging and especially this sort of emerging drought situation that we're in today is so daunting because like you said, you know, even places that normally would have water just to set the table, you know, up here, there's Folsom Lake, 
there was this big super bloom this year and everyone's like, wow, that's so cool. Well, the super bloom is due to the fact that the water levels have dropped like way below where they're supposed to be. And so all of a sudden these flowers have the ability to bloom when they're really not supposed to be there, right? And the same goes for um, reservoirs across the state. They're at sort of historic lows. And so, you know, you look at snowpack and the Sierras and all this stuff, and there's just so many indicators that this is going to be really, really tough drought. So I say, you know, first and foremost, you know, their biggest response is monitoring. And I know that's not a terrifically, a, you know, sexy answer, but the honest truth is we, we have to just know where we're at, right? And so we can ratchet up all the different levers in terms of our response as quickly as possible, right? So with more information, we can make better and more informed choices. And, you know, the governor did declare a drought emergency in a couple of counties for that reason, right? We already know that we're in a problem there. So let us put those, you know, emergency orders in effect now so that they can have the base impact. But we also have to monitor all the other places, right? And so we've been working very closely in coordination uh, between our sort of local and state partners to just stay in very, very close communication and contact. We created a task force here and, you know, as part of our state effort, just to make sure that there's constant communication. And it's, I would say that one of the highest priorities for us right now in terms of our focus. You know, I think there's probably uh, a bunch to be said in terms of some of the uh, announcements again it's like it says five billion dollars for drought you know and, and water resilience and like what does that mean and you know part of that is helping local communities who have you know a docket of drought mitigation or water resilience projects that they just don't have the money to do right so helping you know direct funding right away and infusion of cash into the communities that are looking to do that work so i'll give an example and this is not one i think that is super you know, high or, you know, it's like one of the projects that's definitely going to be funded, but like say the LA River. LA River has a certain flow that goes through the water, you know, it's whether it's stormwater or other things. If you could put some water capture opportunities in that, you could actually create, or frankly, what I would say, recreate local water storage that normally before the engineering of that river would have, you know, percolated into all of the water aquifers naturally because the water would spread out over the large delta, but doesn't anymore because it's concretized and just flushes down towards the the ocean. You know, so let's say, let's put in some, back in some of the water filtration and infiltration opportunities so that we can recapture some of that water in Southern California, right? Like not having to bring it over the mountains, not having to bring it from Colorado, but increase the storage capacity within the Southern California basin so that we can capture and retain more of that water. So those types of projects are the ones that communities have been clamoring for for a long time. And so let's help get that money out there to help folks um, get that done. And then then there's, of course, like emergency response stuff like Mm -hmm. What do we do if people don't have water, you know, which happens? It's just crazy to think about. But like in some places in the state, in droughts in the past, people have not had drinking water, right? So we have to be able to set up, you know, the emergency response for that and make sure that people are ready. Is there is there ultimately a kind of breaking point on population size for California that has been analyzed at all where it's like, hey, look, there's some certain number of people, I don't know if it's, I mean, today we're at 40, today maybe it's 45, 50, 60 million people where if we get to that level, people just won't have water and there's no way around that. Is there, have there been any analysis done on that? Is there, is there a breaking point or, or is this something where no matter how large the population in California gets, we will still always be able to get them water? Uh, so there's such a, such a tough one because I think 
you know, there, like I said, there's, there's opportunities to improve the way we actually manage water in the state that would mean that we could be more sustainable in the long term. And so, you know, I don't think there's like a perfect magic number for where, you know, mm-hmm. California should be. But I think what we can say is that we need to do a whole lot better when it comes to educating people on how to use water. So not just you know, we, 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 we talk about shorter showers and all that stuff, but, you know, honestly, it's, it's about like big ag and it's about, you know, the, the, the transport of water across the state, you know, those are industrial uses. These are the ones that, you know, we need to really get serious about figuring out on how to use less water, but also be smarter on how we apply it. Right. And so, you know, you know, I would say I hesitate to really, you know, speak to say, a particular population because I think we have so much efficiency we can bring into the system. And I think we just the, the biggest X factor to us now, I, I would say, is less about population and more about climate change, right? That the the changing pattern of climate and weather is what is throwing us off the most, right? Like we we cannot we are having a harder time guessing how to manage our water and therefore it's more difficult to manage through periods of time because it's all changing so quickly, right? And that's just kind of like this dynamic that's happening on the highest front that is is most the most difficult part, I think, of all of this. There was a story, I forget, one month ago, two months ago, that I'm just curious to get your take on around Nestle. And it, the story, and I, again, I don't know how much of it was true or not, or which was accredited, but it seemed the, the claim was that Nestle was sort of extracting more water than their allotment to essentially put into bottles and sell back to people. What what was go actually happened there? Was that true? Was that not true? What was the kind of situation there? That's a, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with that particular issue, but I think it 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 what it is illustrating, because I've heard a little bit about it, but I, I apologize, I don't know exactly all the details of it, but you know, is business as usual still continuing in a place in the face of basically what is an incredible, you know, emergency scenario and why aren't we dealing with it, right? Like, I think that's what that story and many stories like it, you know, I hear, you know, about different kinds of industrial practices in farming communities or whether it's, you know, extraction of other, you know, resources or whatever and the use of water. And so the theme is there, right? And I think, I, you know, so I can't speak to that particular issue because I don't, I don't know enough about it, but what I will say is that we are looking very closely at those big um, water users and having a very uh, frank conversation about how we all need to work together because this situation is just, it's bad for everyone, right? It's bad for them. It's bad for us. It's bad for the consumer, bad for individuals, and we have to get ahead of it today. So, you know, you know, sorry not to know enough about that. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, the damning, the damning of rivers and natural water bodies to sort of redirect water where it's needed has been a tool used for a long time, and it's a tool used in California as well. But there's a, you know, trade-off in that it, it is an incredible, you know, kind of in, intrusion augmentation of the natural world. These things also come into conflict with Native American communities very frequently of these kind of natural bodies that are kind of intruded and augmented in ways that adversely impact them and the, and the land. And as, as someone who is a steward yourself of the natural world and uh, protecting it and protecting it in its sort of natural form as much as possible, but also recognizing that 
you know, there are 40 million people in California that need water. How do you balance those two types of things? And where, are tr- how do you make trade-off decisions? Like, how do you think about that equation? I mean, it's a really, really great question. And I would say one that we tackled or we try, we'll say <laughs> tackled would imply we were done with it. We, I would say made a step towards trying to really address as part of this statewide water resilience portfolio, right? So this is an initiative that we started early on in this administration to wrap our arms around all the different um, stakeholders and interests around water in the state to be able to come together to really focus on water resilience. And so, you know, part of that is also, you know, increasing the kind of coordination and co-management, frankly, with tribal communities, um, making sure that we're investing in the right ways, not just in those communities, but across the state in terms of resilience. And then really, frankly, creating a place and space for all of these conversations to happen in a coordinated fashion so that we can really partner together to make that um, a reality. So I would say, you know, it is a it is a work in progress, but it is something that I think we are really tracking as like one of the most critical issues that we can can really address. And and the so the the final portfolio was put out last year, but it really it was the beginning of a conversation in many ways. Like right, it's like so we have this plan. We understand how we're going to be tackling the over reliance on groundwater. We're going to be thinking about you know the impacts of climate change. We're going to be thinking about tribal consultation. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? Like, so we have a plan and now the point is for all of us to work together to sort of implement this across all of those different stakeholders, you know, in the many years and decades to come. Well, I, I don't envy those in charge of managing California's water. So <laughs> wish you And I will say I am but a, you know, a, cheer, a cheerleader, a champion of those who are truly you know, the experts at this, I mean, there's centuries worth of legal, cultural, and, you know, political compromises and deals that have led us to where we are today. And so, you know, really in awe of the work that happens every day to ensure that we can all like, you know, turn our faucets on and make sure that we have clean drinking water. So um, very thankful for all the work they do. Absolutely. Last topic, which is equally as complex and something we're not going to get through in a couple of questions, but let's just touch on it while we're here. Wildfires. So these are an increasingly massive issue in California. You know, for context for our listeners, five of the six largest wildfires in California's history took place last year. The second largest one took place two years ago. The seventh largest one took place three years ago. You know, all the data shows that this is this issue is getting worse. And this is not unique to California. We know what happened in the Australian bushfires, what's happening in the Amazon. And, you know, in California specifically, the kind of combination of increasing drought and increasing sort of use of water resources and natural resources with increasing heat due to climate change is a deadly combination. And it for sure is a major contributor in our wildfire episode I did last year, we touched on all the different issues that contribute to it. It's also outdated power lines that are kind of running through the state. It's, you know, there's a lot of human error, right? Of human started fires. It's the, you know, kind of lack of investment in, in forest management, real forest management, not raking leaves as some former presidents would suggest is, is the issue. And, you know, it's, it was interesting too in learning from uh, mechanic in Fresno is that, there is, you know, some reason and data to believe that kind of moving away from 
the timber industry in California and moving completely away from it as we have as in a means to protect the forest has also led to an, you know, kind of a, you know, a number, you know, the, the forest has gotten thicker and denser, but that also those trees are competing for water. And, you know, this, this person made an interesting case of like, well, now we're just buying a lot of timber from overseas or from countries like China. And what about the climate issue of the transportation costs of moving that timber over here and shipping that timber over here when we could be allocating, you know, a controlled timber industry here in California that also creates natural fire breaks. And that's another thing is land management, you know, all, you know, if you, if you look at sort of practices from native peoples, whether it be native Americans or native people in, in Australia, they'll tell you like actually controlled burns are one of the best ways to protect fires. So it seems like it's an amalgamation of all of these things happening at once, but it's causing a lot of problems. And it, there's no reason to believe that 2021 isn't going to have a massive wildfire issue again. And this is something that affects all Californians. It's not just a Southern, Northern, Central Valley thing. It's all over at this point. So what, what is being done right now learning what we learned in 2020, which was the worst fire season ever in the state of California. What has been done and what is being done to prepare, can't fully prevent it, because again, things like climate change are not slowing down anytime soon. Even the power line being outdated, it would take years to rebuild all of those. Population size and competition resources, again, is not something that's easy to solve. So it seems reason to believe that there's gonna be wildfires. Uh, there always are, but they're going to be big again. What's being done to prepare this time around and what can be done to prevent them from getting to the size and scope that we saw last year? Whew, an amazing question. And actually, I have two things I'll point you to and I'll, I'll send you those as well. There has been a shared stewardship agreement with the U.S. Forest Service since I think your, your podcast happened last year. That is all about creating an opportunity with the federal government, who, by the way, owns 53% or excuse me, 58% of our forest lands in the state of California. So I think what people don't realize, so taking a small step back is like California has huge amounts of forest lands, 40% of it is privately owned. So to your point about, you know, old private land that was used for, you know, milling trees and all that kind of stuff, the commercial lands, but we also have 58% of it is also owned by um, the federal government, right? And so we as California and the state of California, and frankly, local municipalities, you know, only have so much we can do on our own, right? And so this agreement was a, you know, frankly, a response to an incredibly difficult fire season to say, hey, you know what, if you guys are, you know, our you have to be our partner here, because the issue is also that California, I would say, adequately funds its fire program, the federal government does not. And so forest service land, you know, can become this huge liability for the entire state. We are not looking at that land as well as part of our solution, right? So the first and foremost, I would say is we really expanded our partnership. So that, and then also this, you know, announcement we made earlier this year, it's called the California Wildfire and Forest Resilience Action Plan. And it was a plan and a strategy pulled together by the Governor's Forest Management Task Force. So this task force had been in, in existence for some time, but really their work was accelerated last year to create this plan, not just with ourselves, but with the federal government and with local government, right? Because local government really is in charge. Oops. 
sorry, the dog almost escaped. Um, local government's really in charge of, of land use planning. So what I would say is at the largest level, whether, you know, it's the state, the folks or the local, you know, we're doing response, right? So when it comes to just putting out the fire, doing that, we have to work together. The second layer of that too is what I would say is, is how do we, you know, prevent or mitigate forest fires. So that's the, you know, creating those fire breaks or, you know, thinning forests or prescribed fire, you know, all the ways that you can sort of inoculate is what I would say, communities and, and these forests from, you know, raging out of control, right? And then the, the longer term piece is really that local planning, like where do people actually live? How do we save areas for emergency response? How do we treat you know our homes in order to be able to make them more resilient to fire so that these things don't burn crazy out of control right and so all of these pieces are sort of taken into account with these two um, elements that I mentioned and I think we have a really strong story to tell about a proactive you know effort that being said this isn't going to be an incredibly difficult year at least that's how we're planning for it right because it's incredibly dry out there and we have so many communities that are built right up to basically, you know, wildlands. When I lived in LA, I lived, you know, in the middle of the city, but there were fires like not too far from me, you know, because there were folks who were living like right on the, on the Angeles forest. Right. And so all of those communities that are at the foothills, they're all considered, you know, the wildland urban interface as they call it, and are subject to incredible risk when it comes to wildfire, even in the middle of LA, right? And there was a fire in Griffith Park, right? Like uh, anywhere in the state is, is possible. So anyway, a long answer, but there's so much to say on all of these pieces. And then, you know, I will say there was a infusion of, of really critical funding just a few weeks back. We called it early action funding to be able to prior to the budget, release a bunch of money to be able to do some of this fire break work in advance of what we think is going to be a difficult season. So, you know, going out there and clearing out those areas that either have old timber or being able to just create like, you know, a little space so the fire just doesn't rage completely out of control is a huge, you know, a huge tool in the, in the effort to fight fire in the state. But again, you know, I would, I would put a last a plug into preparedness, right? Like all of us should be ready no yeah. matter where you live. I mean, we're, we're, we're nearing, you know, kind of under two months getting into peak fire season, yeah. which typically is sort of July into September, October. And so we're right on the, on the cusp of it again. Is there any data available of, you know, how many fire breaks have been created in the last, you know, six to eight months since the last fire season that weren't there before? Is, any, is this being measured at all? Yes, there's a series of high priority projects and I will send you um, all that information, but it's something we're monitoring really closely. There was actually, yes, there, there is a public list of all of the like high priority fire mitigation um, projects that are, you know, kind of being ticked through at the state level that I can share with you because yeah, that is really critical. Yeah, I appreciate that. And to the point of like the majority of the forests in California are federally managed, you know, I, I'm really eager and and I'm looking forward with with you know kind of optimistic viewpoint. You know, for the first time, and we talk about you know the importance of you know putting 
you know, people of color in leadership roles in conservation. And I've always thought it's specifically we need, you know, people in the Native American community because no one knows this land and our natural resources better than Native people. They have, they have lived on it for thousands of years and it's so personal to them, the sort of stewardship of it. And so, you know, for the first time we, we have a Native American woman in Deb Holland running a department of interior. And I was, you know, of all the cabinet selections and kind of getting, you know, people getting sworn in on Biden's cabinet, that was the one that I was most looking forward to and most excited about because now, you know, Deb literally is in charge, right, of the of the sort of federally managed forests. And I'm really, really hoping that she can kind of break through a lot of the bureaucracy and red tape that it comes with any, you know, kind of major government role in DC to, to sort of, you know, kind of push us towards uh, an era where we, we just are making better decisions on the federal level, you know, around our natural resources and thinking of it as not just, I think historically federal agencies have been looking at natural resources as a means of economic growth, right? And looking at natural resources through the lens of, well, how do we extract value to grow our, essentially our GDP <laughs> more than anything else. And I think we've reached a breaking point on that kind of sort of formula and recognizing it doesn't work. We actually have to sort of, we certainly don't want to, you know, we, we want to grow our economy, we want a strong economy, everyone benefits from that, but it has to, we can't treat in kind of environmental externalities as externalities. There are costs that need to be accounted for and there are things that need to be managed. And yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to see what Deb does in this role. She's only been in it for a couple months now, so it's not fair to evaluate anything so early in her tenure. And there's so much red tape, especially when you get into kind of managing these natural lands and these different issues, but I'm eager to see how, see what comes from it. Yeah, and we're very excited to partner with her. I mean, she brings such incredible experience, but also just a new fresh way of looking at the, at the work that, and, you know, I'm, you know, obviously I'm familiar with a lot of the books at the federal level, but, you know, many of the books that are working with her are just sort of top-notch people and, and they really are prioritizing Native American communities in their work. And that's, that's a huge change for Department of Interior, right? And Mm -hmm. how that helps shape all the policies of that incredible department and vast and sweeping mandate that she has is going to be just, I think, thrilling to watch. So I'm really excited too, and we're excited to partner with them. And yeah, it couldn't come at, I think, a more opportune time. We just, we really need it, whether it's climate change or biodiversity crisis or access or, you know, wildfire water. I mean, name any of the issues. I think that lens will be really important. Uh, final kind of fun sign-off topic. Have you or your team been kind of following the 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 adventure of OR93 at no. all? No. What is that? No. No, I haven't. Uh, so OR93 is a is a wolf that oh. crossed the Oregon California border, and as of like a four weeks ago, went as far south as San Luis Obispo. It's actually the furthest south any wolf has been in over 200 years in the state. And obviously all, all those in the wolf conservation community are really hoping OR93 will make, make his way back north. Um, he's most likely looking for a mate. We don't know at all what, what his taking, because there's no, there's definitely no wolf tracks that he's tracking down there. So we don't know, you know, what exactly is drawing him that far south, but want him to make his way back up north and ultimately, you know, probably back up to the border area where there are 
packs that he could mate with. But it's been kind of an adventure. You know, my my friends that I've made in the in the wolf conservation community, kind of every day following his footsteps as this kind of adventure un- unfolds. But yeah, I'm just curious if like it's crossed your path at all, the journey of OR-93. I was going to say, I didn't know him as OR-93, but yes, I had heard of the wolf that was like venturing its way south. And I, I mean, it's, it's just incredible, but I think also goes to show how much we don't, we don't internalize what would have been a normal range for these animals, right? These animals had incredible range across this whole Mm. region. But what's so sad, of course, is like, to your point, it's like, he's, not going to find anyone down there and he's got to go back up north to rejoin, you know, and, and continue his life forward. But it's kind of exciting, certainly, and just thrilling to kind of see, I don't know, I mean, just to sort of see it in real life, right? Like to see this animal kind of just exist the way it used to. So yes, no, I do remember it now. I just knew it as like, the, as the gray wolf that was like traveling down the coast. The and- the, the romantic in me really views OR93 as a kind of Moana story. <laughs> right now of, you know, he, he's not actually looking for a mate as Moana was not looking for a mate. He's just an adventure seeker who didn't want to be contained by what, what he was told was his boundaries as Moana did and, and is sort of making a statement for the world to see that, that, yeah, that, that's the sort of, I mean, that's probably not the case in terms of what's actually going on in, in our 93's head, but you never know. That's the thing about, about wildlife and wild animals. We don't really know what's going on in between the years. But yeah, that's the the romantic version that I'm going to keep going in my head for sure. <laughs> I think it's a beautiful metaphor, though, for every. No, no. One of those puppies is in a is exactly what we should be doing every day. And I don't oh, you, know. You I, I think it's. Sorry, it's, the, it's, it's the one. It's the you're, one. You're oh, cutting okay. out. Oh, I just said it's like it's. Oh, uh, you now? cut out, you cut, you froze at, um, I think it's a beautiful metaphor. Oh, I just said it's a beautiful metaphor for people like us who do this kind of work to push the boundaries every day, right? Like, and I think it's to think about the interconnectivity of all these things in a way that you can never like imagine. So I love your, I love your take on it. I will take that with me because I think <laughs> it's a great way to think about everything and, and maybe a little bit of a little hopefulness that the that we've healed a bit of the mistreatment of all of these um, conservation landscapes, right? So that maybe, maybe OR93 feels comfortable now in a way that he wouldn't have before because we've, we've repaired some of the damage. We've increased the connectivity in a way that's helpful and happy. So Yeah. Well, sadly, what's happening in states like Idaho and Montana is quite the opposite for wolves right now. They're getting massacred and exterminated again from state legislature. So clearly there is, there's still an issue where we have people in government actively wanting to exterminate these animals out of what seems just cultural, you know, hatred more than anything else. Well, it's, I guess, the nature of change, right? Like you, it's not a linear uh, path. We have to keep pushing. Keep chipping away. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's no end to that, you know, whether it's economic or cultural or whatever interest pushing in a different direction. So you have yeah. to keep pushing. Absolutely. Well, Thank you for your time, Angela. Thank you for the work you do. Um, looking forward to the things you continue to do in this role. And uh, hopefully we can we can stay in touch. Oh my gosh, I'd love to. I'd love to enjoy your fabulous trip. Um, oh, thank and, you. and thanks for the opportunity. It was really fun. So thank you. Awesome.